As we continue in our service, I'm going to ask the ushers to come and take their places in just a moment. I'm going to pray uh, for our offering today, but getting ready to do that, uh, we have baptism coming up on November 3rd. We also have kind of a backup date on November 10th, but if you know you should get baptized, you just have a few minutes here or maybe a minute to grab a card, put your name on it, check baptism or circle baptism, drop it in. We'll contact you and then we'll call you in, talk to you about you can answer any of your questions that you have about baptism and we want to include you in that service. It's just three weeks from now, so hope that you do that. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your your goodness and your love for us and we thank you uh, that we have the privilege of giving back. Lord, you have blessed us with resources and Lord, we thank you for the joy that we have in worshiping you by giving a portion of our resources back to you. God, We thank you for what you've done in our life, and we thank you for the greatest gift, the gift of your Son, what that means to so many of us here. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We are in a series called Why Believe, and that's the question that we are answering. Why believe? Last week we talked about how, why believe? Because we can trust what the Bible says. We talked about how we can prove that the Bible did not change over centuries because we can go back uh, to within a one or two hundred years and piece together the scripture from, from, those, from copies that old and fragments and manuscripts that old. And so we have full confidence in what scripture says. But we're doing this whole series, Why Believe, really for two reasons. One is... People who are are naturally skeptical of Christianity, we want to answer their questions. Their questions are legitimate, and we want to answer those, and so uh, they can move forward in in their process of deciding on Jesus. But there's a second reason, and that's for all of us as believers, that we would be equipped to explain these things to people that we know that have these questions, people that maybe won't walk into a church. That's our job to explain to them these answers. And the reason that we do that is because 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, Yet with gentleness and reverence, or he said, do this with gentleness and respect. And so we're going to dive into a topic today, another topic about why I believe. But before we get there, um, Zach is now preaching in Tiffin. So that means he's not here, so I can tell stories about him. So that's pretty convenient. So one thing that's different about Zach is that when he and Kate have children... They don't name their children in advance. They actually wait until after the birth, and then they go through the process of deciding on a name. It's just kind of different. They're not prepared with names. And so, for example, in two weeks, Kate, his wife Kate, gives birth to their third child. And I already know how this is going to play out, because there will be no name, and then they'll give birth, and then they'll start talking about a name, and then they may not always agree on what that name should be. So they'll talk about several names. Well, then it, will become, it becomes time to dismiss the child, but they won't let the child leave the hospital until they come up with a name. 
Zach doesn't like that. He calls that, they're holding my baby hostage until I come up with a name. He doesn't like it. He wants to be able to take them and name them later. So it's just a weird thing. Now, I personally, and I think Pam agrees with me on this, I personally like the rule that you have to name the child before they leave the hospital because otherwise my other two grandsons would be called like kid one and kid two because I don't know that they still would have come up with a name. So luckily they force that issue and they make them name them before they leave. So that's all coming up. We'll watch the drama play out in the hospital. But here's the deal. You sometimes, on some issues, you cannot remain undecided. You must decide. And what we're talking about today is Jesus. You must decide on Jesus. Why believe? Because Jesus said he was God and proved it with the resurrection. We're not talking about that. But Jesus said he was God. That's what we're looking at today. Now... I got to tell you that Jesus, as you may know, is different from every other religious leader in the world, almost in every way. He is different from the leader of every other major religion in almost every way that you can figure it out. For example, his lifestyle was completely unlike theirs. He was homeless during his public ministry, his public years, for the most part, he associated with lower class and irreligious people. Uh, But what most clearly sets Jesus apart from the leaders of every other major religion is that Jesus claimed to be God. And, And that is huge. For example, Gandhi, Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, They all said, basically, if you follow me, I'll show you God. I'll I'll show you the way to God. Jesus said, I am the way. Other leaders said, well, you follow me, I'll show you truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. Other religious leaders said, hey, follow me and I'll show you God. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. It's completely different. Jesus made his identity very clear. And one of the most strongest statements he made about his identity being God is in John 8. But because of the wording, sometimes that's easily missed. But it is the most profound statement that Jesus made about his identity. So I invite everybody to turn to John chapter 8 in your device or the, uh, the Bible in the chair rack in front of you or follow along on the screens. Here's what John writes. The Jews answered and said to him, we do, not, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me but I do not seek my glory there is one who seeks and judges truly truly I say to you if anyone keeps my word he will never see death the Jews said to him now we know that you have a demon Abraham died and the prophets also and you say if anyone keeps my word he will not Never taste death? 
Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died also. Whom do you make yourself out to be? So they're asking the question, who are you saying you are? Who do you think you are is what they're asking. Verse 54, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So just to lay the context, what's happening is Jesus is there for the Feast of Tabernacles. This is a a Jewish feast that goes on for a little over a week. And so they're all there. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's teaching. And he's having more and more conflicts with the religious leaders who are there. And they're hearing his teaching. And then that sort of sums up the end of chapter 8. is sort of the end of this conflict in this one instance. And then they... Jesus brings up, hey, Abraham rejoices in my day. And, I, and then he comes up with a statement, I am. And I know we'll explain that in a minute. But that is a claim to be God. And we must decide on Jesus. And really, there are only three options. The three options are this. That Jesus either lied about who he was. Or it could be that he lied because he was delusional. He didn't even know he was lying. The second option is... He's mentally unbalanced, he's confused, and he thinks he's God, but he's not. Or the third option is that he is who he said he is, that he is who he said he was. And so first option goes this way. Some people say, well, Jesus, he's a liar, and he's motivated not by good, but by evil, so that he deliberately lied about himself. And that he did that with evil motives. And that's what his enemies said about him. But please understand, in order to believe that, you must believe that the greatest teacher in history who taught the highest moral standard that we have on earth, that that same teacher lied about everything, lied about his identity, and his only motivation was so that he would be killed. It really doesn't make any common sense. It's hard to believe. Now, option number two, and nobody hardly ever says that today, that that he's a liar, and it's because his teaching is so well respected. Now, option number two is that Jesus is self-deceived. He says he's God because he really thinks he's God, but he really isn't God. That's how that scenario goes. And so they would say that he's mentally confused, 
And this is what happened with the Jewish leaders. First, they say he's motivated by evil. He's talking about, oh, you must be demon-possessed. But second, they question, oh, you're not yet 50? You think you've seen Abraham who lived hundreds of years ago? You're off your rocker. That's kind of what they're saying. And so people who take this position, that, that he's mentally unbalanced, you know, they're, they they, they, they like these, these guys in the first century, they question and mock his sanity. Now, I've met people in this category. How many of you have ever talked to somebody or met somebody who actually thought they were God? Because I've done that more than once. Ever talked to somebody who thought they were God? I guess it's not that common. But anyway, it's happened to me a couple of times. I, you know, then it was in my prior job where I ran into people who claimed to be God. And I can tell you by personal experience that, they, that in talking with them and having conversation with these people, they are confused. They don't make rational sense. They can hardly string sentences together effectively. They're mentally unbalanced. It's very easy to see. They are the exact opposite of who Jesus is as the eyewitness record presents Jesus in the New Testament, who speaks with crystal clarity, if you know what he's talking about. I mean, he, he says some of the most profound things we've ever said. These other people don't talk like that. It's completely the opposite. Take my word for it, since you've never talked to anybody like that. That's the way it is. And so, it's, but it's hard to believe, again, that the most famous person in history who is known all over the world by Christians and non-Christians. He is known for his wisdom. That this same person who's known all over the world today for his wisdom was actually delusional and mentally unbalanced and didn't really know what he is talking about. Hard to believe. And then Jesus responds by making the most stunning claim of all Although it's not exactly super easy to see in English, but I'm going to explain that to you. He says he's God. And he said that many places, just in one place. He says he's God. Now, sometimes I meet people and we talk about Jesus and they'll say, Jesus, they'll say, Jesus never claimed to be God. And I'll say, he never claimed to be, no, he never claimed to be God. What happened was, it's kind of like Paul Bunyan. He, he was a great teacher, and then his followers started following him, and then generations and generations and generations down the line, hundreds of years later, his legend grew and grew, and then people started thinking he was actually God, and then somehow they wrote that into the Bible that he was God, but when he, when he was actually here, he never made that claim. Now, we know that to be false. And if you were here last Sunday, we can prove that to be false. That there was no time for legends to develop because the New Testament was written within... Fifth, the whole New Testament was all written in its entirety in separate books by, by 90 AD, which is 57 years after his crucifixion. So within 57 years of his death... The whole New Testament was written. There was no time. So they were all written prior to that. 
So there's no time for legends to grow because eyewitnesses are still alive. They're the ones doing the writing. So there's no legend stuff. That's exactly wrong. Other people will say, well, you know, he wasn't really God. But the Jewish people, his followers thought he was God because back in the day, they were ancient people. They were really superstitious. They would believe anybody was God. That's just how they thought back then. Wrong. The Jewish people... And the Jewish religion was the last religion on earth that would think that a human being was God. Unlike the other cultures around them, like Greek culture, where you had many gods. And then you had gods and mortals cohabitating and producing half-gods. The Jewish people didn't see, they saw God as completely separate and transcendent and above everything. They were the last people and the last religion that would ever think that a human being could be God, yet it's to these people that Jesus makes this claim. The most astounding claim in history. And that claim comes at the end of that text that I read you in John 8, 58 and 59. I'll remind you. He said, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, because Jesus, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, now we got to break this down a little bit. Jesus didn't say, so Abraham lived hundreds of years before Jesus. Jesus didn't say, before Abraham was, I was. Like, I was there before Abraham. That's not what he's saying. Sounds like it. But he says, before Abraham was born, I am. Not I was, but I am. And when he said that, his enemies exploded into action, started grabbing rocks in order to, to throw at Jesus to stone him. Because they understood exactly what Jesus was saying. With this phrase, I am, he was claiming to be God and they were stoning him for blasphemy, and by the way, stoning was the prescribed punishment for blasphemy. It's just that that was supposed to happen through a judicial process, not by mob violence. So they're responding to deal out the punishment for blasphemy. Now, why is this blasphemy? Why does when Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am, how is that blasphemy? Blasphemy is saying he's God. And here's how. Because the term... I am that Jesus is you using, and his, his enemies understood exactly what he, how he was using that, and they were right. The term I am is how God identified himself with his own personal name. And that all happened early in the Jewish people's history. It was during the time of their captivity in Egypt. During this time, if you'll remember, God calls Moses, who actually had been born in Egypt and then and was raised in the king's palace and actually fled because he got outside of the law there and he went and he became a shepherd and now he's a shepherd for 40 years and God comes to him and says, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt and lead my people out of there, lead them to freedom. Remember the story? You with me? Yeah, so and then, how does Moses react? This is at the burning bush. He's a shepherd, bush is burning, goes to check it out. God starts talking to him audibly. 
And then Moses starts delivering up excuses because he doesn't want to do it. And one of the excuses are, well, what if they ask me? He's saying, these people, first he's saying, I'm not a good talker. This isn't going to work. He says, uh, you know, I, I'm not eloquent. And then he says, well, what if they ask me, who sent you? What's his name? How am I going to answer them? Because they didn't have a name of God, a personal name. And so here's how that breaks down. Here's how God answers him in Exodus 3.14. This is a very key passage for God's identity. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So God's telling Moses what to say. And he's telling him, my personal name is I am. This is the greatest, highest expression of God's self-existence. When God calls himself I am, he's saying, I am the cause, or I am the uncaused cause. I am self-existent. It's the most profound revelation of actually who God is. Now, there's some details here that, that I want to talk about, but I'm going to get into the weeds just for a couple minutes to, go, to dig a little deeper on this. Are you with me? I'm not going to lose you. Okay, I'll, I'll try to keep it short. So this I am that's written in Hebrew in, the, in Exodus 3 is actually written with three Hebrew letters, three consonants. And it, it's this, that. So I'm sorry, three, four consonants. So it's four consonants and there are no vowels. When Hebrew, which is an ancient language, first became a language, they did not have vowels because everybody knew how to pronounce the consonants that they saw. But as a language grows, then you need those certain consonants to represent more words because your vocabulary has grown. So then you have to start distinguishing the vowel sounds in between the consonants. Does that make sense so far? Okay. Does that make sense so far? Okay. So, so it's originally, but because the Hebrew people, they didn't ever want to change the word of God, especially, they came up with a way, then rather than insert vowels in between the consonants and this, then the lengthen the word, they could go back to a text that was previously written and they came up with vowel pointing, which is just putting little dots around the letters that are already there that would then tell you how to pronounce the word. So they could go back to a document that didn't have vowels, and without rewriting that document, they could put in vowel pointing by just little dots. Does that make sense? And then what they did, okay, I might have lost a few there. Then what they did is be, they, Jewish people, knew that God's name was holy. Part of the commandments were you cannot take God's name in vain. So Jewish people never spoke the name of God. So when they were reading the Old Testament and they came across these four consonants, which is called the Tetragrammaton, which just means four letters, when they came across these four letters, they didn't know how to pronounce it, nor did they want to pronounce it. So what the copyists in Hebrew did is they added the vowel pointing 
of another word called Adonai, which means Lord, and they put that vowel pointing around the tetragrammaton, which then reminded the reader not to read this word, but to say Adonai, which simply means Lord. English versions carry that tradition by sometimes in our Bible, you see the four-letter word LORD in all caps. That's not God yelling at you. That's us distinguishing that that where you see LORD in all caps is where the tetragrammaton, the four consonants in Hebrew, show up. And then we pronounce LORD just like the Hebrews said Adonai instead of Yahweh. So are you with me so far? Now, some people, and here's the thing, we not only don't, do not know how to pronounce it, we also don't know how many syllables, because it could be either two or three syllables. We typically pronounce the tetragrammaton as Yahweh, but we don't know that that's true. Now, some people, some Christians, and at least one cult will tell you that the personal name of God is Jehovah, which is not true. And I'll show you where that came from, if you have a minute. Are you with me? Okay, they got Jehovah by taking those four consonants, and then they took the vowels from Adonai, which were never intended to be the way to pronounce the name. And then some people took the vowels from Elohim. But they took the vowels, they inserted them, and then they made it three syllables, and they used those vowels then to create a new word, Yahovah, or Yahovah. And then they changed the beginning Y to a J to make it Jehovah, even though in Hebrew there is no J sound. So ironically, we know it's not Jehovah, because in Hebrew there's no J sound in the alphabet. As a matter of fact, that's why if you'll notice, Hebrew Christians often refer to Jesus as Yeshua, because there's no J in the Hebrew language. Are you still with me? So they went that with that Yahovah instead of just the, the easier Yahweh. But that's just a man-made name for God. We know that's not how to pronounce it because of the J sound. And most scholars agree that this is two syllables and probably was pronounced Yahweh, but we do not know. That's the story of the Tetragrammaton. Are you with me? All right, I'm off of that. Now we're back. In John 8, when Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. They understand that he's using this tetragrammaton phrase, that he is saying he's using the personal name of God from Exodus chapter 3. They understand that, and that's why even though they've been arguing for two chapters all of a sudden, the argument stops, and as soon as Jesus says, I am, they stop talking, pick up rocks to throw at him, to stone him, to kill him. Argument over, now we will kill you because he's claiming to be God. Now, here's the deal. This is Jesus' claim to be God over and over. This, just to the Jewish mind, was the most drastic way of doing it. But even in John, even two chapters later in John 10, I'll read another event in Jesus' life, starting in verse 24. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, 
How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So they're asking, are you the Christ? Now, to the Jewish mind, being the Messiah, Christ, and being God in the flesh, that's not how they were thinking about the Messiah. The Messiah was the promised one of God, and he was going to do a bunch of stuff and show a lot of great signs, but they were not seeing that he would be God in flesh. So they're just asking, are you the Messiah or not? And Jesus answered in verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. By the way, this is a great passage where Jesus is teaching about eternal security. Once you truly for sure become a believer, that never changes. Nothing can snatch you out of Jesus' hand. And he strengthens that with the next statement in verse 29. My Father, who has given them to me, talking about believers, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Talking about believers. Then, here's the stunner, verse 30. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, verse 31 says. Verse 32, Jesus answered them and said, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Again, Jesus is claiming deity. And, that's, and it's the same thing. As soon as he does that, they, they stop talking and start stoning him. But that's not all. Jesus claims to be deity all through the gospel record. All through these four eyewitness accounts of his life. For example, how many of you have noticed or read in the New Testament where Jesus says, your sins are forgiven to some guy? Anybody? You with me? Yeah, he says that a lot. Who can forgive somebody's sins against another person? Let me tell you a story. I'm reversing this because last time I had Tim punching Forrest. This time I have Forrest. Let's say Forrest, Pastor Forrest, came up to Tim, Pastor Tim, and punched him in the face. And let's say this time it was for no reason. He just did it. He just punched Tim as hard as he could in the face. And then I saw it. So then I come up and say, hey, Forrest, you're forgiven. Don't worry about that. Can I forgive Forrest for punching Tim in the face? No, who has to forgive Forrest for punching Tim in the face? Tim. Tim's got to forgive him. Actually, I flipped this around last time, and then after the sermon, I had Tim punching Forrest. After the sermon, he said, well, you forgot one thing, and I'm like that. Well, before Forrest could, ask, before Forrest could even talk, he'd have to regain consciousness. <laughs> but anyway, so this time it's Forrest punching Tim, and then I say, hey, Forrest, I forgive you for punching Tim. Tim's going to be like, you can't forgive him for punching him. This happens all the time in religions. And Christian religions, 
where people and church leaders and priests forgive people of their sins against other people. But we cannot do that. Now, there's one exception. God. Because God told Tim, no, told Forrest not to punch Tim. So when, when Forrest punches Tim for no reason, that's a sin against Tim, but it's also a sin against God. So God can forgive for us for doing that. You following me? But that's it. Just the person who's been sinned against or God. Nobody else can do that. I don't get to do that as a pastor, start forgiving people for things they did to other people. And no religious leader can. But Jesus does it. Why? Because all sin is against God and God alone can forgive sins against him. Every time Jesus said your sins are forgiven, remember the Jewish leaders hated that when he did that because they recognized that's not your place. How can you do that? Only God. And that's what they said to him. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is going, right. That's right. When Jesus says your sins are forgiven, he's claiming to be God. Now, those are the three options. Either Jesus lied about who he was, or Jesus was self-deceived. He thought he was God, but of course he was not, some people would say. Or he was God, just like he said. Now, those are the only three legitimate options. Now, there's a fourth option. Today, nobody says Jesus is evil. And nobody wants to say Jesus is a lunatic, because he's produced the greatest wisdom on our planet. But they don't want to say Jesus is God, so they come up with a fourth option. But this fourth option is not really an option. The fourth option, and I bet some of you have heard this, is people will say this. Jesus was a great moral teacher. I've heard you know, people will tell me this. Well, Kevin, you know, we'll talk about Jesus. They're not a believer. And they'll say, well, Kevin, you know, I believe that Jesus was a great moral teacher. But I, but I don't believe he was God. Jesus is not allowing this option to us because he claimed to be God. And great moral teachers don't blatantly lie about their own identity. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? What if next Sunday I had a guest speaker come in and so we're all just sitting there listening to him and uh, he's kind of an old friend of mine. He's a pastor. I have him come in. He's speaking and in the middle of his sermon, and, and, and we're all kind of thinking, this sermon's going a little sideways. And then in the middle of his sermon, he says this. I am revealing to you now that I am the infinite God of the universe. And we're all thinking, this guy's nuts. <laughs> now, as, and who knows how that, how that sermon's going to end, because we'd be jerking him off the platform and all this, so it's a mess, Right? And so everybody's walking out to their cars. No, nobody, none of you are walking out like this. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was, that was different. Don't know about everything he said, but boy, he was a good teacher, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a great teacher. Nobody's saying that. Because he said he was God. We don't, if you don't believe him, he can't be a good teacher. He's lying. That's how we would view it today. That's exactly how people viewed it then. If he's not telling the truth, he cannot be a good teacher. 
What's interesting is one time a man approached Jesus in his ministry and addressed him. Good teacher. You remember that story? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you remember what Jesus said? He answered that question. But do you remember how Jesus first responded to him? He said, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And then he went on and answered. Jesus kept claiming, pointing, showing us that he's God. And the Jewish people that interacted with Jesus, they understood that claiming that he's a great teacher or a prophet or whatever, anything, or just merely a Messiah and not being God, they all understood Jesus was not giving them that option. That's what we know. And so you must decide. And by the way, you must decide because your eternity is at stake. Jesus says that in this passage where he's talking about seeing death, but not just that. Earlier in John chapter 8, in verse 24, he said it this way, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. What he's saying is unless you make the decision that Jesus is God, you're going to, and if you don't do this before you die, We just have limited time. If you don't do this before you die, you will die in your sins. And what that means is you will be separated from God forever. No second chances. All the Bible is telling us that. You only have this life and God has not guaranteed us another day. And then some people would say, well, if we must decide, how can I be sure that I've made that decision. And this is a little trickier than you think because of something else that happened in John chapter 8. I want to go back earlier than the text I read to, to verse 30 and 31. And you got to listen to this close. Talking about Jesus, it says, John says, as he spoke these things, many came to believe him, to believe in him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, So he's talking to people who believe him. And he says this. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Why would Jesus say to people who believe? If you continue in my word, then you're truly a disciple. Now, we've already several weeks ago talked about being a disciple is just being a a believer. You don't get to be a believer and not be a disciple. All believers are disciples. But he's saying, why the if? If you continue in my word, then you will truly... What's going on there? Is he saying that if we don't, we can lose our salvation? He's not saying that because we just read a text in John 10 where he's saying nobody can snatch him. That's including ourselves. Nobody can snatch him from my hand. Nobody can snatch him from my father's hand. Once we're saved, we're saved forever if we're saved truly. So then what's he talking about? Here's what he means. He's saying true faith. If you're truly my disciple, if you truly believe. See, they believed he was the Messiah. They believed in his miracles. But then when he starts making these 
crazy in their minds claims to be God, they don't believe anymore. And so Jesus is telling them, true faith is demonstrated by continuing in his word. When we continue in his word, it produces change in our life. That dynamic is exactly why we created a purpose statement that says we at Grace exist to help people discover truth, decide on Jesus, And we know we've decided on Jesus when we demonstrate change in our life and deploy for others. That's the same dynamic. That's what Jesus is talking about right here. When we continue in his word, it produces change. We want to show up. We want to attend church where we learn, hang around other believers and learn more about him. We want to follow him in believer's baptism. We want to take communion periodically. That's part of following God. In this passage, Jesus is forcing you and me to make a decision. He's saying you cannot stay on the fence. You cannot be like Zach and just want to stay at the hospital forever or take the baby without naming the child. You have to decide and you have a limited time to do that. And so... If you just merely believe that Jesus is the Son of God, even that, but you're you're really not continuing in his word, there's a good chance it's not real salvation. We're called to follow. And so if you don't know that you've made that decision to truly follow Christ, do it today. Or keep coming back and find it. Get your questions answered. Follow Christ. And if you're a believer... And you're following Jesus, who is the God of the universe, who died for you. We need to take the limits off of our allegiance to him and follow him all the way. Let's stand together for prayer. Father God, thank you for loving us. Father, we pray for those who are here that maybe haven't crossed that line of faith. We're so glad that they're here. But we, we pray that you'd continue to draw them closer and closer to yourself to where they can make this decision because they don't have forever. And Lord, help us to be a part of that because they're just like we were. And Father, for those of us who are believers, Lord, it's hard to understand that you exist etern- eternally In plurality, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Although it makes sense if you're a God of love that you loved even before creation. God, just help us to follow you, to be all in for you. Lord, help us to reach out to others with your love. And Lord, thank you for the greatest gift of the universe, which was the death of your son. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Tim's going to lead us in a song. We believe this. If you believe it, sing it out.